Hello, um, just before we get started with this month's Cucumber podcast, I want to tell you about Cucumber Fest London, um, which is our annual gathering of people who deeply care about collaboration. Um, this year, Cucumber Fest is split between a day of short talks and as well as a day of open space. And we're very fortunate to welcome back Dan North, who's, who's famed for introducing um, the term behavior-driven development, and Eureka Malgram, um, someone we've had here before who's brilliant, uh, a tester who turned to an agile coach and is now a developer. Uh, there's more details in our show notes, or you can just go straight to cucumberfest.cucumber.io. Bye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Aslak Helisoy, and this week we are going to talk about the screenplay pattern. So here at Cucumber, we like mob programming, and we are going to try something new. This time we're going to do a mob podcast, because I've got a whole bunch of people joining me today. Um, first of all, I've got uh, Angie Jones, who, um, who we interviewed uh, previously from Twitter. Hello, Angie. Hello. And I'm also joined by Nat Price. Hello. And Jan Molak. Hi there. And John Smart. Hello. And my colleague Matt Wynn. Hi. And my other colleague Steve Took. Hey, everybody. So, um, yeah, so let's just start by uh, talking a little bit about what the screenplay pattern is. It's a pattern, uh, and I've been reading up on design patterns, and I've learned that every pattern has a problem and a constraint. So um, maybe some of you, uh, one of you could give me, um, or the, maybe some of you could explain to the listeners what's the problem and what's the constraint of the screenplay pattern. Right. Okay. So there's actually a, a number of, of problems that uh, the screenplay pattern uh, attempts to solve. Well, probably the first most obvious one is how do we actually structure our uh, test code. You know, it, it gives you basically a foundation of, um, of organizing your code in a way that it's uh, more composable, more scalable, and actually uh, makes your code easier to, to discover. So that's pretty much the, the, the premise of the whole, whole idea, is how do we make testing more composable and easier to scale? Okay. Um, anyone wants to add anything to this? Uh, hello, Nat here. Um, it's, I think, uh, it's a useful sort of response to difficulties you encounter when using the page object pattern for writing tests that go through the GUI. What you find with the page object pattern is your page objects end up getting bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, and it's very hard to deal with the variability in the, in the different test scenarios that you want to write. Um, and so you're, you're, uh, if you try and model your page objects or UI objects and put all of the uh, different variants into those objects, they end up with really big, fat APIs and very complicated internals. So organizing things purely by the structure of the UI is not enough. We have to take a, those page objects apart and compose their behavior out of different parts of the problem and solution. And that's what the screenplay pattern does. It's a, it's a way of decomposing the things that we need to think about and, and, and interact with to test a system through the UI. Okay. Um, so I heard a lot of 
talk about screens there. So does it mean that the screenplay pattern is just like the page object pattern? Is it exclusively for testing user interfaces via screens? I might chip in here. I've uh, been doing the screenplay, and Jan as well, he's been doing a lot of work in this area, using screenplay for REST APIs or a combination of UI testing and REST API testing because the nice thing about the screenplay pattern is that it models user behavior as opposed to modeling the application that you're testing or the user interface that you're testing. It means you don't commit to a particular way of testing your application. You can say something like... Uh, given that Sally is a registered customer or given that uh, Aslac is a high-risk customer. I'm not. <laughs> and that may be a REST call or that may be a UI call, but we don't commit ourselves to a particular solution. And so we can compose our tests either using back-end tests or UI tests, but we're modeling. We're not modeling how the, how the application behaves in the sense of what the screen does. We're modeling how the user behaves. So what are the users, what are the user's goals? What are their tasks? What are they trying to achieve? What uh, sequence of actions do they take? And that changes the whole perspective on reusability. We no longer think of, oh, I've got to test this through the UI. We think of what is the user trying to achieve? And at a second level, what is the best way to make that happen? John, that fits really nicely with um, the Gherkin-type scenarios and Cucumber um, tool as well. And I know that you can use Cucumber with uh, this screenplay pattern. Um, it really requires a new way of thinking about scenarios. So like with the page object model, um, as you imply, we think of the implementation as like a series of clicks and page appearances. With screenplay, it seems more goal-focused. So do you find that this helps automators write better um, Gherkin as well because they're less focused on the incidental details of clicking? I per, I'll take this again, but then I'll hand it over to someone else. But just because I'm in right in the middle of working with teams in this exact area. And that's absolutely right, Angie. What I do find is that uh, when you do example mapping or feature mapping, feature mapping in particular, because it's a little bit more focused on the user flows and their activities, uh, the Gherk, nice Gherkin scenarios just fall out of the feature mapping and that goes straight into a nice screenplay implementation. Because, yeah, it does make, the, make people think more about what you're trying to achieve, that take, and it takes a scenario to that higher level, which, which gives you those nice Gherkin scenarios that don't have all the clicks and UI interactions that you tend to get if you have testers coming in from a pure test automation perspective. Maybe I can add one more thing here. So exactly what John said, and on top of that, it also gives you a very nice way of introducing domain concepts into your design. So we can actually start at the very top level. So we start with the cucumber scenarios where we start using domain vocabulary. So for example, we could say that you now uh, I'm submitting an application to request an account to be opened. So I'm already talking about an application, a submission, a, an account, an opening post, and so on. So what we can do next is we can actually make our screenplay uh, tasks work with domain objects, so value objects at this level. So driving from, from Cucumber scenarios, we can start introducing domain types, which we then uh, use together with tasks to then, then drive the design of our system. 
And also what I've been doing over the last uh, couple of months is I've been working on a system that's uh, based around the microservice architecture. So what we're doing here actually is um, an approach I, I described you know, uh, last year in my talk on testing web applications at scale and not describing his uh, having our cake and eating it. So basically the idea where we can actually drive the, the application design at different levels. So what we currently do is we, we write the cucumber scenarios, we capture domain vocabulary, we design domain objects, we then drive the design of, of microservices, the, then the design of their interfaces, and then on top of that, we layer the, the UI. So basically, it gives us an opportunity to introduce those domain concepts and embed them into the application as we go. So let me see if I understand. Um, from the... From the well, if, if you use Cucumber together with, with the screenplay pattern, are you saying that your, the, the scenarios, they tend to be very high level and talk about what instead of how? Um, and so, for example, uh, well, you, don't, you, you don't mention uh, the user interface at all in your, in your scenarios. Is that right? But that's the, uh, always the goal of writing your, your sort of... Uh, tests, your acceptance tests, or your feature tests or whatever. Um, yeah. But what the screenplay pattern uh, helps with is keeping those details out of your tests and putting right. them somewhere else so that uh, there isn't the temptation to like stick a, oh, and the user clicks on a button uh, yeah. thing in the middle of your, of your test uh, scenario, your sort of description of your system behavior. Instead, there is a, a model of the the, the task that the user is trying to do and 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 behind that sort of abstraction is a oh well actually it's done through these gestures or whatever you know by clicking here and doing that and then you can just use it again and again and again to uh you know in your test say oh when the user does this thing oh that happens to be done by clicking here blah blah blah, blah but that's an implementation detail and then the rest of the test can run yeah, so does this allow you to reuse the tests then uh, and connect them at different uh, layers of your application. What I find the reuse is not so much a test because I came across someone asking, "Can I? I've got a login test and I've got a some other test, and I want to reuse my login test in my other test." And I'm wondering why the screen closes at the end of the login test when I reuse it. Uh, what Screenplay does is it lets you reuse not the test as such, but the components that you that build up the tests, and that's actually much more powerful because a test is basically, if you think of the array jacked assert or given when then, a test has at least an action and an outcome, a consequence, something you evaluate. When you reuse those components, you're only interested in the action, not so much in the outcome. You want a different outcome for a different test, so. Uh, you'll be since in screenplay, you know, the the things you recompose are business tasks, very high level concepts, like uh, that you uh, re register a customer or uh, create a create an order, or so very high level concepts. They're very easy to reuse in other tests. So that that's where you get the big leverage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that you can reuse those smaller building blocks uh, in in other scenarios. Um, what I what I was wondering about in specific was not not so much reuse of the building blocks, but um, being able to to run the same the same test in different configurations. 
um, what, for example, you know, let's say that you have a, a, a scenario or, a te- or an acceptance test, whatever you call it, uh, that has something to do with uh, placing orders. Um, uh, and then you, you can run that one acceptance test completely through the UI, you know, full stack and get a lot of confidence, but it's kind of slow. But is there a way that the screenplay pattern would, would allow you to run the same test in a different configuration, for example, only connecting to the domain logic and, and not even interacting with the UI? Nat, I see you're nodding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. So uh, Jan mentioned a talk I did at... Uh, QCup, not in QCup last year, uh, called uh, "Having Our Cake and Eating It," um, and and that was the approach we took. So we had a slightly different test architecture to the screenplay pattern, as was originally described by I believe it was was it Ian, was it you and Anthony Marcano who wrote up the first sort of description of the pattern? Um, yes, it was Andy Palmer there as well. Yeah, um, and and the original write up was very sort of sort of focused on sort of driving through the UI and how to abstract away from that. Um, but the approach we took was, well, you know, like John said, we don't want to assume we're going through the UI. We would like to be able to drive the business logic directly in memory so our tests can run really, really fast. But it'd be, we don't want to have to write the same thing again or, you know, very similar kind of thing again to drive the system end-to-end or through the sort of microservice interfaces or what have you. It'd be great if we could just point our different tests at different scales of the system and get like very fast feedback and then more and more sort of the system exercised uh, with the same test uh, where it makes sense. So we wrote our tests to only use the business domain model um, and then wrote sort of functions that map the business domain models into uh, interactions at particular interfaces of the system. In memory, you just use them directly, and in micro uh, service interface, you map it into sort of REST calls into the interface, and then further out, you know, through the UI, you can map it into uh, interactions through Selenium WebDriver against the browser. Um, but the test is exactly the same yeah. code; it's just running through a different abstraction that takes a domain model being used in the test and maps it into interactions, and then interactions back into the domain model into error codes what have you in in the domain model that sounds uh, yeah we've, we've been doing something similar uh, at Qcom as well um, i've talked to i only i don't know about many people or many teams who, who managed to pull this off or even tried um but it's it's a really an amazing experience when you manage to do that yeah, we had a lot of debates in our team about is it worth the complexity. Certainly, wasn't a thing something that people were used to seeing in a, uh, because you know it's not a, a common thing. And so we occasionally would find things that were very difficult to test this way. Um, and then there would be a debate: oh, it's really difficult to test this thing against the domain model. It makes no sense. And we would have a debate about whether to actually rip this out and just go against this interface or that interface. But every time we looked at that, we found that the reason it was so difficult to test was because we'd put business logic in the wrong place. We'd put it in the HTTP layer or we'd put it into the user interface layer yeah. inappropriately. And every time we refactored our code back to our hexagon architecture again, it became easy to test. So actually we kept it in right. because it so kept us on the design pressure from different different angles. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I, I actually found, found very, very, very similar things uh, based on our recent experience. So uh, what we're actually doing is we were driving the design of the system from, from the service layer, then we attached the test adapters to the REST APIs layers, then, then the UI. 
And uh, uh, what we also do is we, we combine Cucumber with, with Serenity.js and Serenity.b reporting. So what this all means is that we can actually run uh, our acceptance tests. And last time I checked, it took about 0.9 seconds to run those acceptance tests and then produce the acceptance test report, which we can then use to uh, present to the auditors of the system as an actual description mm. of how the system works. That is really cool. Um, okay, I, I want to dive a little bit more into details about the pattern itself. Um, I know that there are... Uh, you know, there's there's five or six different elements um, of the patterns that have different responsibilities. Um, John, do you want to give us a quick rundown of, of what those elements are? Sure. Basically, the screenplay pattern is a user-centric pattern in the sense that it's focused on user behavior. So the first main element is the actor. The actor is responsible for doing things, for performing actions or tasks. The second component is the task that the users perform. Now, in most of the screenplay implementations we've been working on in Java and JavaScript for Serenity, we call that task a performable. And we actually distinguish between business tasks and user interactions. So the interactions are when you interact with the UI and a task is some sort of business level action. That's, from a technical perspective, that's a fairly arbitrary distinction, but from a semantic perspective, it's quite useful. It also means when you configure things like screenplay for screenshots, you can say, okay, I only want screenshots for the business tasks. I don't care about the interactions, or I want screenshots for everything. Could you give us a quick example so, of that, just to help people understand what you mean th between the difference? So we might have a task which is uh, register a user. So given Sally is a registered user, We'll have uh, actually a registered user. We need an actor. We need some sort of system admin person who might register a user. So we'll have uh, Sally, the system admin, who will register. Who shall we register? We'll register Steve. <laughs> so Sally, the system admin, uh, registers a user called Steve. That's a business task. So that's at a task level. The register a user action object is a task level. Within that task, Sally does other things. So it's all a nested concept where you have the, basically you have an actor who performs things, an actor who does things. So at the top level, the actor performs a task of registering a user. Inside registering a user, what does the actor do? Well, she performs a number of interactions. So she might log on to the system. Uh, actually, we tend to have we tend to find that we have three layers because we have interactions and we have the real clicks and selects and so forth. So quite often for, for more complicated systems, we'll have tasks and then two levels of interactions or bigger and smaller business tasks and interactions. But conceptually, register a user and then she'll go into the system, she'll log on, she'll click, she'll select objects and so forth, interacting with the UI, or maybe she'll call a REST API uh, and get a get a JSON response. That's an interaction with the system. So as soon as you're actually hitting the system, it's an interaction. Uh, but what we tend to find is that if you find yourself with an actor that's doing six or seven interactions inside a task, then you feel like it's too big and you want to refactor it and decompose it into some more right. more aggregated actions, which is sort of halfway between business tasks and interactions. Okay. 
the, it, when we implemented it in the way I described earlier, we added an additional concept, which was the role. So we distinguished between the role that an actor plays in a scenario uh, and the actor that then performs that role. So we kind of like took the sort of screenplay metaphor and carried on running with it. So uh, a role might be the, the, the role is what you care about in the test, you know, an administrator. And then the actor is uh, the implementation that knows how to uh, actually perform that role against a particular interface of the system. So we might have a, you know, a rest role or a screenplay, uh, uh, web driver role, uh, actor i should say so a web driver we would have something like a, in our case it's like we have editors and authors we'd have a web driver author or a uh, http rest author um or a in memory author um and they'd all be playing an author role in our particular scenarios that's interesting we did it the other way around we did actors who have abilities so our actor is totally decoupled from what they can do so the and the ability is what you can do. So we have the ability to browse the web with a web driver. We have the ability to interact with a REST API and so forth. So it's the same concept but switched around a little bit, which is interesting. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it came about because we have developers who are very keen on, on sort of like uh, strong typing, static typing. So rather than dynamically loading uh, things into an actor and then not knowing whether they're there or not, we wanted to have a sort of a, a, a statically typed API for each of the roles, which we knew that you know anything we called on was going to actually execute and not, you know, and then give us autocomplete in the IDE and things like that. So yeah, the tools sort of in, and and sort of dev culture influenced the way we were designing our APIs. Mm. And then there's, there's a last concept here um, called questions, isn't there? Um, Jan, what's a question? Ah, so it's a, that's an excellent question. So, yeah, what is a question? So, um, a question is basically a, um, a concept that you use in order to uh, make the actor check the state of the system. Now, if, if this sounds a little bit now uh, wishy-washy, let me give you an, an actual example. So, uh, this actually uh, borrows a lot from um, patterns like, you know, like command query separation, right? So, you can think of the interactions as commands that an actor issues to the system. So, clicks, the, the post requests, uh, this sort of thing are all the commands that you send that make the system change its state in one way or another. Now, a, a question is basically a way for the actor to verify how this state has actually changed and what the current state is. So we could say that now we can have a question about the text of an element on the screen. We can have a question about a, a shape of the JSON blob that the API returns. Or we can have a question about the object returned by our uh, service, uh, our domain service, for instance. Okay, so it's it's typically what you is 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 so you ask a question before you do the assert equals, uh, and you use that as the actual value. Pretty much, but what this also gives you in in combination with with domain driven design concepts is that you can actually ask those questions using those domain types, which can then lead you onto creating queries that you will send to your system uh, and, and so on. So basically, you can actually drive the architecture, the evolving architecture of your system from Cucumber scenarios uh, using screenplay uh, tasks and screenplay model uh, to then uh, develop, develop the system itself. Yeah. So 
before we move off of that, um, just a little bit deeper on this. Um, and looking at actual code that's written with a screen pay, screenplay pattern, I must say that it's beautiful to read. But I personally get kind of confused when looking at the class and the method names um, within the pattern. For instance, if I look at the famous to-do list example provided uh, to illustrate the screenplay pattern, there's a class called start and a method called with an empty to-do list. And while that's easy to read, um, those, that name, those names are not conventional ways uh, that I'm used to of naming classes or methods. So could you tell us more about the naming conventions used in the screenplay pattern um, and how to go about coming up with ones that are easy to read. And I'm guessing that it might kind of coincide with those uh, elements that you have within the pattern. I'll answer this. I'll start it off because I had a thought about that actually a while back. And the thought that I had was that uh, when we're modeling a domain, we think mostly in terms of objects. So we model objects. So we're nouns. We're talking about nouns, things. But when you're modeling mm-hmm. behavior, which is what we do with the screenplay pattern, uh, it's not really the things that we're interested in directly. It's what we do with the things. It's how we interact with the things. So the main idea, the concept that we're really interested in are verbs as opposed to nouns. So our classes start to reflect that and you get a lot of classes which tend to be verbs, doing things, as opposed to nouns, things that you do on, so to speak. Someone want to pick up on that? Uh, well, I, I was going to ask, is it, is it a, a feature of the fact that the pattern was kind of first pulled out inside Java before there was um, anonymous functions? So what we have is lots of method objects. There is that as well. I suspect that. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and if, if you have a look at the JavaScript implementation, uh, because there is no the, 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 the excellent support for, for, for functions as, as primary citizens in, in JavaScript and TypeScript, you can actually create those um, command objects in a much easier way. So you could just you could say things like task.where, specify the description. So, for example, task where act or pays with a default credit card, and then you specify a list of uh, commands that this task will need to execute. So thanks to this uh, native support for, for functions, we can make the code much simpler, much more compact. What it also helps us do is, uh, is not only uh, decompose uh, test steps into smaller commands, but it also allows us to chunk up. So basically, we can easily compose existing tasks into bigger ones, and we can also move them around very, very quickly, which helps to make the modeling process much more efficient. In our system, uh, it's largely written in a functional uh, rather than OO uh, style. So the, there isn't as such distinction between you know, actions and queries and data. You know, like The actions are modeled as as, as uh, an algebraic data type and so the you know the, the actual sort of type names sort of look like verbs um, and so you know the, the people who are working on the code base are kind of used to that 
that uh, blurriness, let's say. Uh, I'm sure real functional programmers wouldn't like to be thought of as blurry, <laughs> but you know. Um, but that that kind of like there isn't a clear distinction between you know uh, Im- imperative things that happen and and data um, because you have to model things that happen as data that then gets applied by the runtime, and so. There, it actually, it felt quite natural in the end. The code read very cleanly, but it was actually using all the domain models, and then the domain code read in a very similar way. And it was quite a nice effect in the end. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled about the, the implementation of the screenplay pattern. Um, because it, it's, it's promoted and, and, and talked about as a pattern, but, but then there's also frameworks that implement the pattern. So what, what is it? Is it, is it a framework or is it a pattern? And, um, yeah, who, who can tell me that? <laughs> I'd say it's a pattern because, uh, we've got several implementations that use that pattern and that leverage that pattern. So Serenity and Serenity, Serenity BVD in Java and Serenity JS in TypeScript and JavaScript, leverage that and combine it with the Serenity reporting, which is quite cool. Uh, but Nat's implementation is obviously a little bit different. It's an implementation of the of the approach without right. necessarily using Serenity. Uh, so you don't have to use Serenity, which is one implementation, to do screenplay. It's just that uh, screenplay okay. is the pattern. And yeah, in fact, it's not the only uh, approach that, serenity allows right it's it's serenity is a framework and the screenplay platform is one of the things it can do and if you fancy writing your tests like that there's all the support in serenity for doing that but it's a it's a sort of design choice you make to solve the yeah, sort of problems right. that you have so what other implementations are there of of the screenplay pattern uh, other than serenity um in the in the wild i mean uh, what you wrote nat sounds like it's probably closed source um i'm afraid so um, but are there any other open source um, implementations? Well, I, I know some experiments that people have done in, in the .NET space. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything actually ready to be uh, used in production. I mean, as, as you obviously know yourself, uh, you know, creating an open source project, maintaining it, you know, promoting it, and so on, uh, it actually requires a lot of work. Yeah, no shit. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that, no, that many people actually want to do it. Uh, right. Yet. Right. So, so yeah, the, the reason why we got those implementation in, in, in JavaScript and, and, and TypeScript and, and, and Java is because those are the technology stacks that we yeah. tend to work uh, most often with. Yeah. So that, that, that's where um, that's where most of our effort uh, has gone into. If you're, uh, let's not say stuck. If you're li- um, living in a test suite that is uh, based around a page object model and you like the sound of this screenplay pattern, um, how do you move from one to the other? So are there any uh, techniques you can suggest uh, to help people to refactor from the, the page object pattern towards this screenplay pattern? How would you get started? Well, fundamentally, what you can think of is a page object layer is the interaction layer. You can start off by just modeling business tasks and then have the business task call your page objects and then gradually refactor your business tasks into using lower-level tasks, lower-level interactions. So that's a fairly easy way to get started because 
what you end up doing is modeling the interactions, the tests that you used to do via a page object, you start to model business tasks that manipulate those page objects. You've still got the ugly big page objects to maintain, so eventually you want to refactor them away. But it's a good start into the approach, and it, does, it means you can just do it one layer at a time. That's one approach I've seen. Often there's a lot of commonality in those page objects as well. So you'll find like you know duplicated logic uh, that can be collapsed either between page objects or within big fat page objects, um, and and so there's the opportunity behind the, a page object to introduce models of interaction and and parameterize them and then push them out uh through you know doing a a sort of introduce parameter to push them out and and therefore uh, thin down your page object so it's coordinating interactions and then you've you've pulled your interactions out into somewhere else where you can like start grouping them together to represent like the sort of business transaction kind of right so that would be sort of chipping away at the problem from the from the leaf nodes like going right down to the individual little interactions and just turning each one of those into a little command object or, or a little function yeah. and, and then yeah. gradually um, hollowing out the page objects until you don't need them anymore because they're, they're not yes, doing Yeah, once you've just composed your interactions together, then the page object is not, you, you know, you can find it's not adding any value. Yeah. So what I really need is to get like John and you to do it together. And John comes out from one end, and you come out from the other end, and then hopefully you be in the middle <laughs> around an empty page object class, and everybody's happy. <laughs> I've heard John and um, other people like Anthony McConnell say that the page object model was created by the WebDriver community as training wheels, essentially. Because people were doing a pretty shabby job of architecting test automation solutions. So some believe for test automation, especially cases where newer and inexperienced programmers are doing the coding, that you need to sacrifice complexity to reduce the barrier to entry for testers who are learning the code. Why is the industry now ready to take the training wheels off and embrace screenplay? We had a team with, we we're working on a team with Jan a couple of years back with Screenplay. And what we found was that uh, if you have a team with a few people who do have enough experience to understand reasonably good development practices and design patterns and so forth, then you can bring on less experienced testers and teach them how to use Screenplay. And since that's they'll start off manipulating business tasks and assembling business tasks and then as they get more confident they'll go down into the interactions and the UI layers Uh, it's actually quite a gradual way of introducing them to uh, scalable patterns without sacrificing the maintainability aspects that which is what happens if uh, you just don't apply any discipline to the uh, to the test automation approach in a lot of cases. If you get new testers and let them write a whole lot of test scripts, then you end up having a lot of maintenance issues later on. Whereas if you, it requires a bit of upfront thinking and engineering and thought, but it does allow people to come up to speed relatively quickly and to learn these practices, uh, even if they weren't aware of them before. So we find that Page objects, Once, if you have people who understand the model and can implement it well, just a few people within a team who can do that, then it's actually a good path to getting test automation folk up to speed with these skills. 
It's also uh, it's also a very good way of, of uh, bringing the best from from both worlds. So uh, the the team that John John describes actually uh, comprised of, of, of a number of, of manual testers as well, right? Mm. So uh, what what we did there is we created a, a set of, of building blocks. So those basic business tasks that could be used to express the more complex scenarios, and then we uh, we. We built on the domain knowledge and experience of the manual testers who knew the system inside out to, to guide the development and design and, and the naming conventions using the code base. And then even though the guys didn't have that much experience with coding uh, itself, because they straight away rec recognized the different uh, verbs and nouns of basically those different building blocks, they could assemble them very, very easily. Because if you think about it, the screenplay pattern is a is a very uh, recursive pattern. So at every single level, you say actor attempts to, and then give the actor a bunch of things to do. Then a task itself is actor attempts to, give me a bunch of things to do. So there's a very little barrier of entry if you have a, a couple of those building blocks uh, prepared for you by, uh, by by someone with good engineering skills, and and we notice that you now programmers are actually uh, very uh, they can very quickly learn those uh, this pattern because it's, it's actually very familiar to them because we would use things like the command pattern we would use factories we would use all those design patterns in our regular production software so it's not rocket science at all. So um, so have you worked with teams that have started from scratch with the screenplay pattern and how has that compared with teams that have refactored towards it and and, and which teams have kind of understood it and, and made best use of it? That, that's a brilliant question. So so the, the team I'm working with right now actually started with, with screenplay. Yeah. Uh, so what this helped us uh, do is actually to, to capture those business concepts, you know, uh, embed them in, in the software as we go. So it actually uh, helps you start off in a, much, uh, in a much better position than if you already have an existing code base and you have to refactor it. I mean, as, as always, is, if you start with something that, that uh, you know, works better or scales better, it's much easier to, to work this approach than uh, to, to take the additional effort to refactor something you already have. So if I'm really invested already in my framework, I have hundreds of tests already that are using the page object model. Would it still make sense to refactor and use screenplay? Or should I just save that for my next job? <laughs> I think that, I mean, if you've got hundreds of tests... Uh, using page objects in order to avoid the tests becoming unmaintainable, you'll probably be quite a long way towards the page of uh, the, the screenplay pattern anyway, you know, because you'll have to deal with the duplication. Um, uh, and, and, you know, as what I found on projects where we've had, well, actually thousands of tests uh, is that the lack of abstraction in the tests can make them, inordinately expensive and the refactoring effort starts to pay off and that actually the screenplay pattern is a way of structuring things that, that starts falling out quite naturally. I think it kind of all depends on, on your motivation as well, right? Because I mean, any refactoring, you know, it, it has to uh, be performed you know, because of some some sensible reasons and not to accomplish some, some, some sensible goal, right? So if you have hundreds of tests and uh, you think about a team, if you're in a situation where you're a tester and you're the only person maintaining those hundreds of tests and the, the developers don't want to touch them because, you know, uh, web driver is a very difficult thing to learn, for instance, then it might be useful to refactor those tests to make them more accessible to the rest of the team. So that might be one, one very good reason to do it. 
mean, if you struggle with the maintenance of those tests, uh, test suites yourself, then that's another good reason to do it. I mean, if all works perfectly fine and you're happy with your page objects, the whole team can contribute to this stuff easily. You can change them with no problem. There's absolutely no point in refactoring them at all because now you've already accomplished your goal. But if this is not the case, then yeah, I, I would say you now invest into uh, improving the, the state of the code base. We had one team, one team I was working, I'm working with uh, at the moment. They have, I think, it's not thousands, but it's a few hundred, couple of hundred tests, uh, and they're quite keen to refactor it towards a page object model because typically thirty percent of the tests fail, and it's not always the same thirty percent. so they're very keen to refactor them progressively and actually when we go through those tests it's it's tests that have a long history there are some tests that when you go into them they're partially implemented or they're they obviously don't actually do what they seem to do so there's a lot of sort of maintenance cost to maintaining those tests that moving it to a cleaner architecture with a consistent way of doing things is going to help them that's also one of the reasons they're doing it is because with the reporting, they want to use the screenplay combined with the Serenity reporting to get a better picture of uh, what the application does from a functional point of view. So Serenity is very nice for that. But really, for the maintenance perspective, it makes a lot of sense in that case. But it's, it is solving a problem. It's solving the fact that the tests are hard to maintain. It costs a lot to maintain them. And they're not telling anyone very, very much useful information. It's it's also like from personal experience, it's very very satisfying, like the the work of taking this kind of spaghetti ish code and turning it into these little pieces like like Jan's described as building blocks and seeing them then reassemble back into business tasks that are described at a nice level of abstraction, like the way you'd actually describe the the things that you would do with your application. Um, it's it's just a really satisfying. Um, activity to do I, I got kind of addicted to it actually in our code base and i would just be like i, I kind of once i figured out how to just do what like the, the first move and make the first um first task and turn one little bit into 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 one task and i started to do two and i started to do three and then i was like i, I was spending my evenings doing it. my wife's like what are you doing at your laptop again and yeah it's it's, it's really really satisfying you just need to send you to rehab <laughs> and this is this is my therapy yeah john mentioned uh reliability or unreliable tests and i think that's another good driver is that uh, by pulling out the right abstractions you end up with for example all the tasks or all the questions or whatever we actually didn't use questions for this reason that i'm about to talk about we're going through the same point exactly the same line of code and so you can put in at that point code to control for example um synchronization with the system under test yeah, so yeah. that if you've got concurrency issues and your test is flickering um sometimes fails and sometimes doesn't you've got one or a very small number of places in the code base where you can like grab control of that unreliability and, and, and get it under control. And that can make a massive difference if you've got 6,000 tests and they've all got like, you know, sort of flickering concurrency issue in them. You know, they're not giving you a lot of useful information and you don't know how much you can trust it anyway. Um, but if you can start getting them really solid, uh, that can make a massive difference. And the refactoring, good architecture really helps there. So I'm hearing a lot of, um, of 
you know, we, we've talked a lot about the benefits of using the screenplay pattern, how great it is, um, and, and I think it is. But there must be some drawbacks as well. What what should people look up for? Um, you know, what what can go wrong? The thing I noticed uh, might be slightly uh, difficult for people to embrace is the approach itself. Because, like Andrew said earlier, it's not something that people are used to, right? So w- one of the one of the questions that caught me uh, completely off guard is you know, uh, is when I was asked, "What type of testing is that?" Right? Because you run your acceptance tests, they're running under a second. W- what is it? They're not <laughs> unit tests, right? They're integration tests, but you don't have any database, right? So could you mock them out? What the hell is that? It's still an acceptance test. That's what I said. But the answer to that was that, yeah, but you are doing acceptance testing with Cucumber and WebDriver. You don't have WebDriver. Yeah, because I want them to be fast. But you don't have WebDriver. Yes, because my life is too short for that. (laughs) (laughs) So so, so that's one of the things. I mean, I I, I guess that's introducing a a completely new approach that changes the way you work, that changes the way you think about the code, about how you structure your, your, your system. Is, is the, the the major challenge, but I think once you actually uh, accept the fact that well, perhaps you don't have to follow the the, the beaten track. No, perhaps you can actually uh, try something new. Then, yeah, interesting things might happen. Right. So there's some cognitive um, cognitive problems. Um, like some people might not understand why you would do it that way. Um, anything else that can be thought of as a drawback or, or difficulty with with the pattern? If you paid overtime, it's really bad because you don't spend as much time debugging <laughs> and tests. <laughs> I think it is a it is quite a programmer centric thing, right? Like the idea that we decompose a problem and then compose a solution is a programmer-centric way of looking at things. Um, and I say that as a, yeah. as a programmer. Um, well, in my experience, testers are thinking about how does this entire system meet the needs of our users, right? And so uh, as I think, you know, following on from what Ian just said, right, it's like people are going to come and go, why aren't you testing the whole system? Because they have a different concern about, the sort of testing infrastructure and and crossing that gap of like getting people to have confidence that if you decompose things like this and test it in this way, we plug them back together and it is going to work is, is a constant conversation that you have to have and understand their concerns and maybe add some additional tests around this integration point or that integration point so that they have a confidence that when you plug the entire system together, it will actually work. Um, and, and that's just a sort of ongoing conversation but i mean you know we're talking with all of our team members anyway so it's not like it's it's an overhead yeah. uh, because the savings are you know in my experience very great um but it's just about you've got to get everyone on board with the idea uh so that we can all run with it as a team yeah do you end up with more code or less code than if you were just using no pattern or the page object pattern i would say less depends on what language you use i was going to say it depends on the model you're using, the the language you're using. Uh, some languages, Java, you tend to get a bit more boilerplate than TypeScript. Uh, that said, generally, yeah, you get less code. That's really surprising to me, especially since this pattern embraces the single responsibility principle. I, w- I imagine, like, especially with um, larger projects, that it would just be t- 
dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of classes for each of these tasks, no? Well, you get lots of classes, but each class would be only a few lines long. Or, for instance, with questions, questions are affected. What we generally do with questions is we use lambdas in Java 8. So you'll have mm. a, a factory method with a, with a number of questions in a related area. So you might have a class that's 10 lines long with eight questions in it. In our code base, the sort of tasks are, um, are from the domain model. Um, and so, well, they exist anyway. We just happen to be using them within the test to, like, express what we want to, how we want to drive the system from the outside. Um, so in that case, it's no overhead at all. Um, but there is code to map between those things into uh, we then create an underlying model of user interaction, which we could then do another mapping of onto different interfaces. So there's a little bit of extra code there, but it turns out to be very common. So all tasks map into our model of user interaction, and then we have a model of user a mapping, for one for each interface. So it sort of breaks down the you know uh, code, the, the amount of code we might need into a few small, quite simple uh, functions in the end. Um, and, and in my experience, that's a lot of that's a lot a, a, a big saving compared to when you have you know if you're driving uh, Selenium directly, you have a lot of duplicated code to sort of manipulate the user interface in each of the tests. Like that. Like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm sure the <laughs> Um where was I? Where was I? Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, like it's, it's a huge saving compared to like writing Selenium directly in tests, which is something. It's a temptation, even with the screenplay pattern. We found that sometimes when people write a UI test only and then slap a load of Selenium in there, um, uh, and 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 even with page objects, you end up with a lot of duplicated stuff uh, just because the effort of refactoring it is 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 huge, yeah, especially in sort of languages like Java. Yeah. And when you do like that, you end up with a screenplay pattern anyway. So slightly different ways of doing the same thing, right? That's what I found when I refactored our stuff out it was just like even just take, taking out a, a little action like um cl- clicking a button and uh or or filling in a field or um it, it like there were slightly subtly different ways we were waiting for the effect of the button click to to complete because we'd done it in like 20 different places in in probably five or six different ways and when it all goes through the one thing Suddenly you see like, oh, right, okay, yeah, that's probably the best way of doing it. Let's just do it, always do it that way. Oh, look, those tests fail now if I do it that way. That's interesting. Oh, they weren't actually waiting for the button to click, were they? Oh, and yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and another thing is, well, often like you've got a lot of variation in your UI, right? There's lots of different ways of doing things. I can navigate by the menu. I can use the mouse. I can use the keyboard. I can do, you know, so there's lots of different ways of doing exactly the same thing. Uh, And if you abstract it out to these tasks, you don't have to test all of them. You can write a mapping from the thing that the user wants to achieve to one of these other things. And then either say, right, I've got a single test that checks that all of these different ways of doing things are equivalent, or you pick a random one. You just go, when the user wants to do this, this time, I'm going to pick a random one. And so then you end up with a bit of randomization in your test, which can shake out all sorts of weird and unexpected results. As long as you can repeat a test failure, so you have a random seed that you record at the beginning, why not randomize things? It's a bit like property-based testing. Right? You're just throwing some randomness into the system to see if there's things you haven't thought about which fall out. Wow. Um, I think 
we could probably keep on talking about this for, for hours, um, but it's, uh, it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, it's been a really, really fascinating and interesting uh, conversation. I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have as well. Um, so we are going to put some, uh, some links um, below or above or around the podcast where people can go and learn more about the screenplay pattern. Um, but before we wrap up, I'd like to invite our guests to share one tip for the people who, who might be looking to uh, trying out the screenplay pattern on their own products or projects. Um, and I'm going to start with you, Jan. What would be your hot tip? Probably the best way to start would be to actually go through this uh, tutorial. So on, on both the Strength.js and, and Strength.db uh, websites, you have the tutorials in respective technologies. So that would probably be the best way to actually uh, get your hands on the code and actually see how the whole thing works and how, how you can uh, assemble the scenarios yourself. And so having gone through the tutorial, I would uh, actually encourage people to have a look, uh, a good look at their, their test code base and actually check you know, if the test code base actually models the behavior of the system or how the system is implemented you know, to see if the entire team can contribute to this uh, test suite or if they can't you know, and what would be the reasons for that. Thanks, Anne. I think that, I think that's a great tip. Um, how about you, John? Uh, I'm going to do a really concrete, focus, specific tip, which will apply to about 5% of the teams as opposed to yards, which is general. Uh, combines screenplay with uh, BDD feature mapping and Cucumber. Uh. That's a really slick pipeline to getting decent tests. Because, and uh, add domain-driven domain design to the mix as well. Why not? <laughs> why not? Yes, yes, we'll do the other one. <laughs> Thanks for that, John. And uh, Nat, what would be your tip? Uh, I'd say that um, people writing the tests and the people designing and writing the system should be working closely together uh, so that lessons learned from difficulty writing tests can be fed back into design and architecture improvements, which will basically uh, make the tests easier to write and therefore more cost-effective. But also, uh, especially at the system level, my experience is that that feedback ends up with the design uh, needing to change to expose more information about what the system is doing, and that makes it uh, easier to actually support the system when you're putting it in production because it's now more observable uh, and understandable the way it's actually behaving during runtime. And that's a really valuable feedback loop to foster. Thank you very much, Nat. Um, okay, so that's it, and thanks for listening, folks. And remember, if you enjoyed the podcast, please comment and subscribe on iTunes, on, Sound, on SoundCloud, or on Stitcher. That helps uh, other people find us. Thanks again, and uh, tune in soon. Bye-bye.